You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 87 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Um, I'm very well, thanks Valerie. I'm back from a big week of school visits and author talks in Sydney and I'm back at my desk and Procrastia Pup is very excited to see me. Is your inbox overflowing? Uh, it is a little, yes. It's, uh, put it this way, I've, I've spent a couple of days going through all the bits and pieces I missed while I was busy talking to people. Yeah, it's one, it's mm. just that time of year, isn't it? Don't you find at this time of the year, everyone wants everything done before Christmas, you know, they probably yep. won't do anything with it till after oh, Christmas. They won't. they won't. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But, I, you know, I, I guess and the, as anyone else who's got kids will know, it's also the busiest possible time of the year for kids as well. Yes. So you've just got so much going on in all directions. It's um, it's shall we say busy. I understand though that congratulations are in order. Yes, I'm very, very excited because the uh, lovely people at Readings Books have nominated or named uh, the Mapmaker Chronicles Prisoner of the Black Hawk, which is book two in the series, as one of the top 10 best middle fiction books of 2015, um, which is a real thrill. So the first book was named on the top 10 best middle fiction books of 2014. Uh, that was the first book. And this is the second book in the series. And it's very unusual. It's a lot of love for the second book in a series. So I'm really Really, really chuffed with this one. Woohoo! Woohoo! Exactly. That's Cue. very Cheering. exciting. Hugh parade. And also, congratulations are in order for uh, Australian Writers Centre presenter Judith Russell, who teaches in on our Melbourne campus, because her book has been shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards. Right. That's right. It's so exciting. Her book, Withering by Sea, which we actually have spoken to Judith about. Yes. Um, people might remember we, we interviewed her for an earlier podcast and definitely worth having a listen to that if you are interested in writing children's fiction because her book, Withering by Sea, has been like it's made all like it was shortlisted for the CBCAs. It's won an Indie Book Award. It's um it's a beautiful little book, perfect Christmas present if you um, are looking for something for that sort of teen, to, uh, sort of tween girl in your mm. life. Um, lovely, lovely little book. And uh, yes, she's made the Prime Minister's Literary Awards shortlist, which is brilliant. Yeah, very brilliant. exciting. Now, so what, what age group again are your trilogy perfect for? My trilogy is perfect for sort of around the nine plus. Uh, age group. It's it's uh, very much middle grade fiction. So if you've got good readers of eight, they will love it. And I know lots and lots of people who have been reading them to their kids and enjoying them together, which has been brilliant. So it's kind of like, okay, so let's say eight to 12 or 13. It's perfect. 
Well, something that is not appropriate for children at all, if you're wanting oh. a book, definitely for adults. <laughs> um, yes. And this is top of mind because we recently had our meetup at the Australian Writers' Centre in Sydney uh, yeah. with uh, the author Candace Fox, crime and thriller author Candace, whose new book is out in like the first week of December uh, and it's called Fall, F-A-L-L, and it's the third in her trilogy of the Archer Bennett, Frank Bennett and Eden Archer series. Mm. And it grabs you from the first few pages. There's literally a twist in the first, you know, few pages. Mm. So I'm not giving anything away. Uh, But uh, if you want to be kept on the edge of your seat, that's definitely um, uh, the kind of book that you need to have a look at. So that's fantastic. And I just want to give a shout out to one of our listeners who actually came to the meetup and introduced herself. So hello to Sarah Begg. It was great to see you at the meetup and hope you enjoyed it. And thank you so much for listening and coming to say hello. Hi, Sarah. But let's move on to the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. We have a very interesting thing. Now, NaNoWriMo has just been been and gone. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with NaNoWriMo, it's National Novel Writing Month where you write a novel in a month along with many, many people all around the world. Now, you did NaNoWriMo, didn't you, Al? I did. I did do it. Um, basically, I didn't win because I never do. <laughs> I, I have never won in my life. Um, but I have probably around 30-odd thousand more words than I had when I started November. 30,000, that's fantastic. I know. And for me, that's that's a that's a big chunk of that's... a middle grade fiction book. So I'm I'm pretty excited. And I in my group, my NaNoWriMo group that yeah, Sarah um, Alison, is in your book. Is in I your know, group. I know. Um that Alison Rushby and I were running on Facebook. We have we have some winners. We were pretty oh, excited. Wow. So the support of that group has managed to get quite a few people over the line, which is brilliant. I am not one of them, but that's okay. <laughs> That's all right. I'm I'm more of the cheer squad when it comes to this kind of stuff. Well, if anyone is preparing for NaNoWriMo 2016, so this mm-hmm. we're giving you a year's notice here. Right, yes. You don't have to, you know, I think it's great to join a group and great to be in touch with other fellow NaNoWriMos around the world. But this is a particularly interesting initiative by a couple who, uh, and we'll put the link in the show notes for those of you who are interested, but they are offering for you to write your book in a castle and you get one month's free stay. So they are renting a castle for November 2016, so NaNoWriMo 2016, and they're giving away one room, which can fit two people, for the entire month of November. So it's for people who are serious about, well, NaNoWriMo, of course, because it's important that you keep your writing going and you get much of your novel done, but who want to live in a castle for that time. And there are pictures of the castle on the link and it looks like a pretty lovely castle, I have to say. So, Well, you know. the one that they show is pictured in France, but they haven't actually decided which castle they're going to go to yet. Oh, They've actually I got see. a thing in here. They're going to rent – ideally, they're going to rent out a whole castle yes. um, because they're hoping that – that there will be other writers who will want to join them in actually paying for a room as well. And then they're giving away one room. So um, one of the things that they say is that you do need to be able to get to Europe on your own and have some spending money for food and stuff. Um, And the other thing I really love is the line that says, please don't enter if you can't actually come. Not everyone can take a month off school or work. And I think it's one of those things where the idea of it is absolutely beautiful, but I cannot see myself being allowed to, you know, leave 
Procrasty <laughs> Pup and the rest of the gang for an entire month. So yes. I hope that some of our listeners do enter and I really hope that one of you wins because, you know, you can broadcast back yeah, from absolutely. the castle. Yeah, absolutely. How cool would that be? And let us know what be? it's like. Yeah. Imagine the Instagramming possibilities. Oh, imagine. Mallory, <laughs> maybe you should enter. I don't think I could get away from all my furry babies for a month at all. They would freak out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd forget me when I came back. They um, would. So let's move on to another link. This is from The Right Life and it is Your Self-Published Book Needs a Cover. Here's how to create it. Now, I thought this was interesting because I come across many, 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 many self-published books. I get sent many self-published books and some of them are fantastic, like the, the content is brilliant and the cover is brilliant, like it's professionally designed. It looks, you know, it's very schmick and others are not great and others, the covers are not great, but the thing that breaks my heart the most, the most is when I get a book and the content is actually fantastic, world-class, mm-hmm. like truly this book is has potential to be life-changing. But the cover is so bad that I know that very few people are going to pick it up. Yeah. And that breaks my heart. So I, I think that if you are going down the route of self-publishing, of course your content needs to be brilliant. Uh, but if you once you get to the cover stage, you need to pay so much attention to the cover because, you know, we say you don't judge a book by its cover, but I'm sorry, people do. Yeah. There's no doubt definitely people do. do. So, you know, one of the things that this link says is to hire a pro and I cannot, cannot emphasize that enough. Don't think that you can, you know, just create the cover yourself. Don't think that your cousin who might have some vague interest in graphic design can create the cover. Hire somebody who is an expert in designing book covers. I think that that is so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, do you see many self-published books in this kind of scenario? I do. Most of them are awful. Mm. And I, it, you know, it bothers me a little bit with the second half of this of this particular post we're looking at. It says do it yourself. And the first one is use Microsoft Word. Mm. Um, no, please don't no. do that. Like I, I really think that, you know, if you're going to put that much, t- you know, blood, sweat and tears and time, yeah. like let's face it, time, into creating your book, then really it's worth budgeting for your cover. It's worth sure. making, you know, it's worth getting someone who actually knows what they're doing. Yes. Um, and I think the best way to do it is to get referrals from other authors um, mm. to ask around as to who's – I mean, there's so many groups on the internet where you can find excellent um, advice about this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, you know, I would even like steer clear of places like Fiverr and stuff. I just yes. – yeah, okay, it's $5, but you know what? You get $5 worth of effort. And Absolutely. I, oh, I just ask yourself, is $5 worth of effort enough – to, you know, is it going to do your book justice? I, I, I don't think it does. No. So we certainly don't agree with all of the things in this post, but we do agree mm. with number one, which is hire yes. a pro. Yeah, and it does give you offer. It does give you options. And I think, you know, places like 99designs are probably worth having a look at because there's a whole range of different ideas there and you get to choose the one that is actually going to be working for you. But I do think that, um, you know, you need to tread carefully with a, with a lot of these things as well. Um, and it's definitely worth reading posts like this to see what's available and then yes. follow up. Um, as I say, in some of the groups, there's a, there's a couple of great um, communities on 
Google Plus of all places. This is what Google Plus is. This is where it really works beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one that I'm a member of and it's called Writers Discussion Group and it's got 20-odd thousand members. There's a lot mm-hmm. of people in there. Um, but there are some regulars there who are self-published authors and they really know what they're talking about and they will give you referrals. They will send mm-hmm. you to websites to have a look at the work of people um, and that might be a great place to start if you're looking for someone to design a book cover for you. Yes. And also when you are looking at uh, books, sometimes if you look in the credits, it will say who the cover is designed by. So sometimes have a look at that. If you like a particular cover and it's in the style that you like, have a look in the credits to see if you can find the designer that way. Yeah, terrific. But importantly, also um, have a look at the course at the Australian Writers' Centre book covers that sell because that will give you an idea of the kind of parameters and framework that you need in order to brief the the pro Mm -hmm. that you're going to hire. That's right because the brief, you know, getting the brief right is essential to getting the book cover that you want. Absolutely. Let's move on to something quite different. I just thought this was a cute link and it's from PR Daily and it's phrases to cut from your writing because there are so many phrases that uh, we just sort of, that are just padding really and it's often found in, I'm not talking so much about fiction writing although it does occur in fiction writing as well, but in everyday writing, in your emails, in your work documents, in reports, that sort of thing, words like uh, for all intents and purposes Mm -hmm. or given the fact that Mm. or, you know, in light of the fact that or it has come to my attention that those words can pretty much just be chopped off. And I think there are, there, there's a bunch of phrases in this list and we'll put the link in the show notes that you can pretty much just uh, use as a ready reckoner. And if you ever have those words in your work documents in particular, you can just get rid of them, you know, mm. like, like needless to say, you don't need that yes. at all, do you? What, what about things like, my? I think my personal my personal bet noir that I use all the time is having said that, oh, comma, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Well, you don't have to say that because you've already said it, Alison, and you <laughs> should cut that phrase. Have you got one? Yeah. Well, I think I have to say that's probably – I'm guilty of that one as well. Mm. I am guilty of that one. So because, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that you're just not aware of. So I encourage everyone to – Well, you're often using it as a transition. Like you're yes. often using it to kind of a, a, on the flow through. But as you actually go back and edit the work, you'll realise that you actually don't need it. So you might as well cut it. Cut it. Yes. Cut it. Now you have a link for us about waiting. I do. Now, this particular link I spotted, but it was also sent to me um, via Twitter, thanks to Steve. Uh, I think it's Triton, T-R-I-T-T-O-N. Could be Triton, but I would say Triton. So sorry about that if I got it wrong. Um, so thanks for that, Steve. But it's a, it's all about waiting. Now, this mm-hmm. struck a particular chord with me because um, my friend Alison Rushby and I have often discussed um, – that we would like to do a workshop that allow that helps new writers come to terms with the fact that they are going to be waiting. Mm. Now, this particular post appeared on the bookdesigner.com, which is Joel Friedland's uh, blog, which is a great blog. It's called Writers, Are You Willing to Play the Waiting Game? Mm-hmm. And it's by C.S. Lakin, who also has a great blog called Live, Write, Thrive. And it's basically all about the fact that when you're a writer and there is no way around this, even self-publishers find, you know, people who are self-publishing find themselves in this position. Um, if they're using a professional editor who's particularly busy or, you know, if they're waiting for a book design or whatever, there are times in your life as a writer when you can do nothing 
but wait. Mm. You will be sitting there waiting. And the thing that you want is that you want to be able to do it right now. You want it to be ready. Mm. And I think that the thing that people need to learn is that writing is one of those things where when you write your first draft and you think it's genius and you're ready to publish it and you want to send it off immediately to everyone in the known universe, (laughs) don't do Mm. that. It takes a long time to get your book into a position where it's ready to be actually, you know, published. Um, And so I I remember when I was first writing, I wrote my first draft and I was really excited by myself. And um, a friend of mine who was a published author told me to put it in a drawer and walk away from it and start writing something else Mm. and then come back to it once I'd finished the other thing. I was like, don't be ridiculous. (laughs) I'm going to send this to an agent right now. Mm. And I did that and they told me that it was a lovely first draft but, you know, really, you know, send it back when it was ready. So (laughs) I know. (laughs) How did you feel when you got that notice? (laughs) I felt felt pretty much like you should feel. I felt completely deflated and I felt like, I'd learned a massive lesson. Um, So this post talks about the fact that it takes 10,000 hours to get really good at something and that means writing as well. Even though you got A's in English at school, Mm. you're not ready to send your novel out. Trust Mm. me. I know. I've been there. Um, So they talk about what to do while you're waiting, what to do while you're working through your 10,000 hours, what to do while you're waiting for that editor to get back to you or what what to do basically. And um, C.S. Lakin suggests that you get a critique partner. She suggests that you attend writers' conferences and take workshops. She she suggests that you study books on writing craft. She basically suggests that you don't assume you know everything Mm -hmm. and that you appreciate the fact that you're a student. Again, yes. because you're learning how to do it. Yeah. So I think it's um it's a great post to read. And particularly in this time when, you know, we're all after instant gratification, yeah. writing to get really good at it takes a lot of time. It's not an instant thing. And I think it's worth coming to terms with that earlier in your career rather than halfway down the track and suddenly thinking, oh, right, that's what you meant. Mm. Yes. And also I would add to that, get a thick skin. Uh, yes, a rhinoceros <laughs> hide. Yeah, I mean, when uh, when at the meetup that I was speaking of with Candace Fox, she talked about the fact that she has over two hundred re- rejection letters, and this is only when she started counting. She didn't. She d- that doesn't include the ones where she wasn't counting yet. No. So she has over two hundred rejection letters. But you know, finally she got picked up by Random House. Um, her third book is being released, and she her fourth book is a co-write collaboration with James Patterson, which is being released next year so she's you know made it now as an author yeah, for sure her way. but you know she she got a rhinoceros hide by living through two more than 200 rejection letters so yes absolutely waiting and a thick skin i would say absolutely yes absolute keys to becoming a published author Now, I just want to tell everyone about our giveaway this week. This giveaway is 13 Ways of Looking by Colm McCann. So it's a novel and uh, according to the write-up on Amazon, this is a, well, it's a novella which is about a retired judge who reflects on his life's work unaware as he goes about his daily routines that this particular morning will be his last. So yeah, it's quite an intriguing premise and there are a bunch of different stories in there and um, the if you want to win a copy of this book 13 ways of looking then go to writerscenter.com.au slash win and entries close on monday the 7th of december so that's writerscenter.com.au slash win so let's move on now 
to the world of blogging. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And what an interesting world it is today, Valerie. What an interesting world. So Mumbrella has reported that Mia Friedman, who of course is the founder of the very successful online site Mamma Mia, has declared that mummy blogs are almost over. Mm-hmm. And she is saying that Mamma Mia is set to scrap its women's network novel, um, not mod- novel, <laughs> we're talking model. about model, and unify all of its brands with its main site. So you know how Mamma Mia has uh, The Glow and Debrief Daily and The Motherish, all those sort of little niche sites. She's going to uh, scrap them, we'll, we'll pull them all back in to the main Mamma Mia site. And uh, she's saying that the audience is moving away from niche sites and that's why she's unifying it all under the one site. And, and she's saying that this is a really – so this is Mia Friedman's quote. This is really important and a big shift. We know that she's busy, as in the Mamma Mia reader. She doesn't have time to visit lots of different homepages or blogs or even necessarily one every day. She doesn't want to be pigeonholed as a mum or as anything else. We've really seen the twilight year of mummy blogs. Mummy blogs are almost over. In fact, personal blogs in general have collapsed in engagement this year. Now this, so that's that's Mia Friedman's quote. Now this, Alison, I'm sure is going to make massive waves in the world of blogging. Well, you know, it may or it may just be like, yeah, whatever, because I think at the end of the day, um, most people who would uh, identify as mummy bloggers probably are just going to keep doing what they're doing and yes. certain of them are doing extremely well at it and they will probably continue to do so. Mm-hmm. I think the thing with blogging is that um, over the last couple of years there's been – there was such immense growth in the number of blogs that yes. there had to be an aggregation at some point of how, you know, because yeah. people just were not going to be able to visit that many blogs every day. But most mm-hmm. of them have their own audience and depending on what they're blogging for, because we have to remember – that not every mummy blogger is blogging, you know, because she wants to be Mia Friedman. A lot of them are just doing it because it's a very nice way of connecting with other people, Mm. um, et cetera. So some of them are actually out there to to make cash and write sponsored posts and that's their business and that's great. But Mm. a lot of them are not doing that. A lot of them are writing mummy blogs because they – uh, they're actually a really great way to kind of get through those early years, I personally think, of <laughs> of child-rearing when your mind is atrophying and you're not quite sure what to do with yourself. Um, so I think there's that, A. Mm. But I also think that we need to look at the bigger picture of the Mamma Mia websites. And I think we have to assume, I personally think, mm. that perhaps – each of those websites as a standalone wasn't working so well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so bringing them back under the Mamma Mia banner makes a lot of sense. They're more sections of one magazine, of one, that to me, I'm thinking magazines because that's yes. the way Mia has always thought yes. in the past. But to me, they're like sections of a magazine as opposed to websites on their own. So it makes sense to bring them all back under under one umbrella from that perspective. Um, you know, you can spin that whichever way you want. Yeah. But, you know, the traffic is all at Mamma Mia, so let's bring all the sites back to Mamma Mia. That makes perfect sense to me. Yes. Um, and to me it's a bit like the magazine world. We've seen a lot of sort of, you know, people where they're putting together uh, – so so they'll put one editor-in-chief over several similar yes. titles and they're even running the same teams, the same editorial teams across several titles producing different magazines and it's a cost-cutting exercise. So can we imagine that that's also going on? I don't know because mm-hmm. I'm not behind the scenes with that. Um, 
But yeah, there'll be it'll be a bit controversial and I don't think it'll be as bad as it was a few years ago. Like everything that Mia says is not necessarily jumped on <laughs> by the mummy bloggers of the world anymore. So <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, let's have a look at social media today and see what yeah, happens. Yeah, you know. that will be interesting to see how this unfolds. So let us move on then to our writer in residence this week. We have Drew Chapman. Now, I thought this was particularly interesting. Drew Chapman is actually a screenwriter and, uh, you know, he has worked in the entertainment industry and in film production in Los Angeles for very many years. He released his first book, The Ascendant, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, And uh, now he has released the sequel, which is King of Fear. The King of Fear, and what's interesting, it's it's first being released as an ebook series in three parts mm. now. So they're going to do you know a bit of a taster, then the next bit, then the next bit, and it'll be released in paperback in February two thousand and sixteen. So it's certainly an experiment by Simon and Schuster, the, the the publisher. But I thought it was interesting to talk to Drew because uh, he had he he didn't start off as a novelist, even though he always wanted to write novels. He just ended up in the film industry, and I was actually on a plane when you know you're watching the in-flight entertainment and I decided to watch this show called Legends and Mm. it's a little bit like Jason Bourne you know it's a guy who's an FBI agent or you know some guy who's who isn't quite sure of his identity um yeah you're not quite sure what his past has been or that's the implication so um and he is actually the he the executive producer of that Mm. and so I thought, okay, that's interesting. And then I discovered he wrote these novels in the meantime. And I thought it would be interesting to have a chat to Drew. So let's have a chat to Drew Chapman. So Drew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, for readers who haven't yet read your book, King of Fear, can you tell us what it's about? Sure. King of Fear is the sequel to my first book called The Ascendant, um, which centers, it's a thriller uh, that centers around a main character named Garrett Riley. And Garrett Riley is a young uh, bond trader in New York City. He works on Wall Street and he he makes his his money through pattern recognition. He sort of sees the ebb and flow of money in the markets, and that's how he kind of makes his fortune. And in the beginning of the first book, he um, sees that somebody is selling off a massive amount of U.S. treasuries to attack the American economy, and then he realizes that it's the Chinese. And then he sort of understands in the book that there's an underground, almost invisible war going on between the U.S. and China. And he gets recruited by the government to help fight that war. And the second book is the sort of ongoing story. It's a new nation and a new problem for Garrett to sort of deal with. And in the second book, it is about Russia um, and the sort of invisible war that's going on between the United States and Russia. And Garrett is in, uh, uh, you know, recruited to help in that too. But ultimately, what the books really are about are character studies of this main character, this guy, Garrett Riley, who is this sort of young hotshot who's also troubled and um, is very much a subversive who never does what he's told, can't be trusted, smokes too much pot, sleeps with too many women, and gets into too many bar fights, and yet he has to be a patriot, and he really doesn't want to be that thing. And so it's sort of about his journey to 
you know, journey growing up, basically. And so your protagonist has a very specific skill, pattern recognition. Did you know somebody who, who had this skill as well? Or did you have experience in the, you know, bond trading industry? Like, where did the first book, the idea for the first book and the setting and the character come from? Well, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with economics and I'm obsessed with math and numbers. So it comes from me. And I, it's not like I'm some specialist in pattern recognition. I just, I love that idea. Um, but the real truth is what I really wanted to make the book about was about somebody who's called to service who doesn't want to do it. Um, who is the sort of very reluctant hero. Um, you know, I, I always say that, I, you know, th this is not Tolstoy. This is a book you pick up at the airport in Los Angeles and you read as you, you know, flying to New York. Um, and I, I love those books. I think those books are great and fun. And But they always have these protagonists who are so macho and <laughs> male and like they can kill you with their little pinky. And I just, I just, I don't know that person. I've never met that person no. and I don't, I'm not interested in that person. I, I want to see, you know, a hero who's sort of like me, who, who's just an everyday guy who might have a particular specialty in life and who applies that specialty to the world. The, the real thing that happened that really, all my books, all my television writing, whatever I do, it's always about a character. It's always about a person. I, I'm always, like, I always shape the story around that one person. And the story that um, fascinated me was, I don't know if you know this in Australia, but in the United States, there was this football player named Pat Tillman, uh, American football, and he left American football in a lucrative contract and joined um, the army. Mm. And he went and he fought in Afghanistan. And he was a big deal when he when it happened, and he was killed. Mm. And he was killed, it turned out, by friendly fire in mm. Afghanistan. And this was a really big deal in the United States. And at his funeral, um, all these people, he was from the state of Arizona, and all these big fancy politicians showed up at his funeral. They had never known the guy, but they spoke about him because he was this national hero. Yeah. And they spoke glowingly about the fact that he had died and that he had served his country. And then his brother got up to speak, and I saw footage of it. And his brother was drunk, mm. really drunk, and he spoke with a beer in his hand. And he was enraged, and he cursed, and he yelled at all the people who had said these wonderful things about his brother. And he said, you know what? You don't know my brother. You don't know why he died. You don't know what he was about. And basically go to hell. And I thought, wow, mm. that guy is interesting. Mm. Who is that guy? And so I started researching him. And I just, you know, he the character is only very, very loosely inspired by the guy. Mm. And so my character has an older brother who dies in Iraq. And he um, hates the army and he hates the military because of it. And he hates the government. And now the government is coming to ask him to work for them. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting contradiction. I want to explore that. Yeah. And that was really where it came from. And so can King of Fear, which as you said is the sequel to The Ascendant, be read as a standalone book? Can Is it self-contained? Would you suggest that to readers? Or do you think that they should start with the first one? Um, well, of course, I'd always like them to buy the first one and uh, start there. But yes, I wrote it absolutely as a um, self-contained book. Uh, you really have to. And like, uh, I love J.K. Rowling's, um, you know, Harry Potter books, mm. which are 
once you get to like the fourth or fifth book, obviously you've read all the first ones. But mm -hmm. when you read the second one, she does a good job of sort of very quickly laying out what everything's about so that if you miss the first one, you still understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it's really an art. I, I had to, uh, my editor had to really help me with that. And like I overwrote the first draft you know, explaining every little detail. And she's like, no, no, you can drop your readers right into the middle of it. Just make sure they're not lost mm. and then they'll follow along. So, you know, I, there's a lot of guys and women who write mysteries and thrillers that have the same character recurring. And sometimes when you pick up like their 13th book, you start reading it and you're completely lost. You have no idea. And I think they, they lose track of the fact that some of us are just wandering through the bookstore and going, Ooh, I'd like to read that. And you don't know what the first one is. You've been involved in writing for the television industry for some years. When did you know that you wanted to be a writer and what did you do to get there back then? You mean just a writer in general? General, yes, as opposed to, you know, a chiropractor or a dog groomer or whatever, yes. Well, you know, the truth is, and this is probably not helpful to your audience, <laughs> there's only been two things I've ever wanted to be in my life, and one was a professional basketball player, uh -huh. and the other was a writer. And given that I'm six feet tall, I was never going to be a professional basketball player. I uh, have wanted to be a writer since I the earliest my earliest memories. I wow. that's the only thing I've ever wanted to do in my life. I can't explain exactly why. Um I love books and I've loved them from early on, although I didn't write books for a long time. I just wrote in the movies and television. Mm. Um I did journalism. I I don't it's in some ways I've always been kind of uh you know, a little regretful that I didn't explore, you know, I could have been a chemist or a whatever. I mean, there's all many things I could have done. And, but no, I just had to be a writer and, and that's all I've ever done. You say that you've always loved books, uh, but how come it took a little while for you to get to your first novel? Um, what was the, what made it you finally ready? Well, I think I had a, a winding road. I mean, I did start in journalism, and then I have a family history in the entertainment business. My dad is a cinematographer, a cameraman. Um, so I had this sort of in to the movie business, and I kind of fell into it. Um, you know, I, I was kicking around and working as a bartender and, you know, just odd jobs. And, and then I thought, oh, I should, you know, I mean, I was writing all the time. And I thought, well, I should write screenplays if I'm not writing journalism. So I didn't write a novel. So I sort of fell into writing screenplays and could make a living at it. And so, you know, you kind of are, are you're trapped by your own competence, right? I was pretty mm -hmm. good at writing screenplays, so I never got around to actually writing the books. I eventually wrote a book because I had the idea for my first book, The Ascendant, mm -hmm. and I was under contract to a TV network to write a screenplay for them um, but they didn't need it for like six to eight months so I had all this time and I was getting paid which is you know like the rarest thing in the world for a writer mm -hmm. and I thought oh I could sell this idea as a television show and then I thought you know maybe this is the moment for me to just like write it as a book instead and mm -hmm. like not you know when you work in the entertainment business you get a lot of notes People are always telling you what mm. to change and what to do and how the audience is going to like it. And I thought, you know, I don't want that. I just want to write the thing I want to write. I don't care if it gets published and I don't care if anybody reads it. I'm just going to write this thing that I want to write. So then I sat down and I did it. And so then what happened? Can you tell us how you got your book deal for The Ascendants? Um, well, it is – it's interesting. I, it And I when I 
teach writing and talk about creative writing, I really harp on this. I wrote The Ascendant entirely for myself with no expectation that it would ever, ever be published. I, I wrote it to self-publish on Amazon. I thought, I'm just going to write this. I'm going to put it up, and if like my mom and ten of her friends read it, that's fine. I'll just those will be my my audience, and I just don't care. And I really, really believed that. I mean, to the point where it just it was incredibly liberating. You know, I I just was going to write this thing that was entirely my own. And then when I had finished, I sent it to a bunch of friends, and I sent it to my um, my movie agents mm. who sell stuff to the entertainment business, and they said well, let us get you a, a literary agent because we think this could be published. And I told them no. I was like, no, I'm just going to publish it myself. And they're like, please, just just give us a shot. Come on, we can do this. And they did. And a publisher, you know, a, a literary agent jumped on it and then and a publisher bought it. It was really just incredibly lucky. And I don't pretend that it was in any way skill. I think it was just the right moment. Just mm. It just kind of happened. It kind of fell into my lap. Brilliant. And so do you find... That's not a very good story. It's not a story of struggle and rejection. I'm sorry. (laughs) Nothing has to be a story. Not not everything needs to be a story of struggle. I know, but it would be more uplifting if I told you. I sent it out to 40 different people, but I didn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, how, when you're writing, you obviously write for TV, which is a very collaborative process. As you say, you get a lot of notes. And writing a novel is a little bit more isolating, in a sense. Do you have to do anything to switch hats or to think, I'm in this mode now, I'm writing a television show. I'm this mode now, I'm writing my novel. Do, do you do anything to, or write in a different space or anything like that? Um, well, when you're writing a TV show, it is so collaborative. I mean, if you're writing on a staff of a television show, you're in a room with all these other writers. So, like, you have no choice but to be, like, collaborative and outgoing with all the other people. And you're just throwing ideas around. I mean, it's fun. It's a very – but it's a very – as you said, very, very different. So, you know, to if I'm writing a book and then I have to go write on staff, I'm forced into another headspace. So it's not a problem. Mm. If you're going the other direction – from writing um, television to writing a book, yeah, I, I, you do have to. I, I spend a certain amount of time, and there's no set time, just trying to be my own boss again. Mm-hmm. Just trying to really figure out what I want to say about the world, and not being it. And this is just me. I, I try not to be commercial. I, I try not to think about what people will like or not like. Um, in the television business, the entertainment business, you have to think about what people are going to like or not like, or you won't work. Mm. Um, you, you know, it is a prerequisite. Yes. But for writing books, you know, I, I, I think it just, I'm sort of lucky that the stuff I like is pretty mainstream. Um, I like thrillers. I, you know, I, I find them fun. I'm not Tolstoy in any way, shape, or form, so mm-hmm. that's not really going to be an issue for me. And I, I, but I do have to remember to just be really true to what I like and what I want to write when I'm writing a book. Um, that seems to me like the only advice that I, the only advice that actually matters. Mm. So when you wrote The King of Fear, and obviously when you wrote The Ascendant, uh, did you 
know the entire plot before you started and work out, you know, this is my arc and all that sort of thing? Or did you kind of just see what happens? <laughs> um, I am, and I think this is from being in the entertainment business for so long, I am a structuralist through and through. Right. I have to know, I have to know everything that happens hmm. beforehand. I have to know the ending, I have to know the middle, I have to know all the scenes. I plot out everything to within an inch of its life before I write a word. Wow. Um, I put down cards, I, I change the cards around, I write it up as an outline. Um, and only when I really know everything do I start writing. Like, I sometimes I, I, I read an interview with um, Isabella Allende, you know, yeah. and she just sits down at the typewriter or the computer once a year, and she has no idea what she's going to write, and she just writes it. Yeah. Like, I, I would just go out of my mind. I, I, <laughs> I would never get a page written. I would just, I would have no idea what to do. So, um, pr practically speaking, how do you physically do that? You say you write on cards, so like index cards you're talking about. Do you do, or, or do you do an electronic version of index cards, like we, what you can find on Scrivener, or do you stick them up on the wall or lay them out on the carpet? What's it look like, actually? Well, what it, what it really looks like at first is, it takes me weeks and sometimes years um, while I'm working on other things to think of that character that I want to write, mm. like in this case, Garrett Riley. So I have this guy and I'm like, oh, I want to write about him. And then I think about who he is. And then I sit down at my computer and I, this I guess is my Isabella Allende moment, right? Mm. I sit down and I free associate about him and mm. what his problem is and who he is and what his situation is, um, who, you know, his parents and his past and his his issues and his flaws and who he loves. And I just write that for as long as it takes. Sometimes it's like an afternoon, sometimes it's like weeks. Mm -hmm. And I just sit and I keep writing and, and the document can be, you know, 50 pages long and it's all just nonsense, yes. but it gets it onto the page for me and I refine and I get closer and closer. And then once I've really finished that up, then I start um, laying out the story and I work in big chunks, I think, because I'm, again, trained as a screenwriter. So I think mm -hmm. in thirds, I think in first act, second yes. act, third act. So I think, okay, in the first act, this is what's going to happen. At the end of the first act, this is that big change. This is the big sort of reversal. Mm -hmm. Here's my middle, and that's going to be the middle of the book. And then at the end of that, here's my next big, like, switcheroo. Mm -hmm. And then here's how I'm, this is the goal that I'm writing towards. Here's the, you know, here's my finale, and here's how it's going to end. Um, and I oh, and even before I f figured out any of those in between stages, I need to know what the final scene yeah. is. I need to know how that <laughs> ending is going to be. Then I can work there. Um, and then I, and then once I have those big blocks done, I write. I just think about what are the most interesting revelatory scenes that I can come up with in between mm. those moments that really, you know. I, I like to think that even though I write stuff that has a lot of sort of action and thrillery mystery stuff in it, it's just a character study. It's just about people. Mm. And so I just, what are the scenes that are interesting and fun that really reveal who this guy is and all the people around him? And then I write those out and I have those on cards. And then, yeah, I, I pin those up on a big board on a mm. wall and I um, lay them out. And then I move them around and I change them. And then once I've settled into like a, a sort of, an outline that I like, I type out that outline into my computer. That mm. becomes like five or 10 pages, very brief outline, print it out. And then I write from that outline. 
the outline changes as I'm writing. So there, there's a lot, you know, the spontaneity is there. It's like, mm. I like that first scene and I know I don't like it. I change it completely because I'm writing it differently, but I need that, the safety net of that thing that I can refer to all the time. Which is the most fun part for you where you're creating and free associating and discovering that character or the bit where you're putting it out, putting all the cards out or the actual writing? Uh, None of those. <laughs> I have two fun parts okay. that are, I mean, all those parts are fun, yeah. but the real fun for me, and I know this is very strange, yeah. is after I've written the entire thing uh-huh. and I've printed it out all, you know, 400 pages and I sit down in a room with a pen and those 400 pages and I go through and I edit them. I you am like the editing process. <laughs> I love editing my own work and just throwing stuff out and changing it and rewrite. And I'll like my first draft has as much written in scroll in the margins as it does typed on the pages. So I just keep changing and changing and changing and I rewrite and I rewrite and I rewrite until I'm, I feel like it's good. Wow. Now I understand that your publisher, Simon and Schuster is field testing a new launch model with the King of Fear and they're releasing it in three parts in digital format. And that started on the 3rd of November, 2015. Tell us about this idea. It's very innovative. Well, um, it is, uh, it is an experiment. It is mm. a field test for sure. Um, you know, uh, I think that my editor at Simon & Schuster, a woman named Mary Sue Rucci, who is a great editor, she um, read the first third of my second book, The King of Fear. And mm-hmm. she got back to me and said, okay, this is good. I like this. I like that. But why don't we release it like in parts? Mm-hmm. Because she has always felt that as somebody who writes a lot of television and movies, I'm good at sort of those cliffhanger endings. Yeah. And she's like, why don't we use that sort of talent of yours to our advantage and release it like in a serialized version and you write those big cliffhangers and then we'll wait and we'll release a second part. And at first I was like, mm, what the hell is this? <laughs> I mean, I had no idea what she's talking about, but then I thought, okay. So I wrote the book to be released that way. I mean, I wrote yeah. it in thirds with big cliffhanger because i thought well that makes sense i can kind of get into that and i and it makes sense given my tv writing background um but i mean the real truth is it's a bit of a marketing experiment i mean i don't i don't i have no idea if it'll work or not work or i'm i'm very afraid that people people who like my first book will read the first third and then they'll be pissed off like hey how come I can only read a third of this? What the hell's going on? Right. And I actually have received a couple of those emails already, so I'm a little oh. nervous. So with that, um, with your protagonist, Garrett Riley, I love that his name is not Jack because, you know, every protagonist in Hollywood his is name Jack. Jack. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but with your background in the film industry, did you write it with an actor in mind? No. I never write. Even when I'm writing... Uh, a TV or movie script, I never write with an actor in mind. I don't, because the truth is, you have no idea who you're going to get, yes. if you will get. Um, and if you write with a specific actor in mind, at least in my opinion, you kind of narrow your um, your your vision. Um, sure. And especially for the book, you know, I, I didn't want, I wanted the book to be a book. 
separate from any kind of mm. movie TV world. I just I just wanted it to be that thing with words on a page. Um, the great you know frustration of any TV or feature writer is that you write so many things that nobody but a small handful of executives ever reads, mm. and that's just like you know that's heartbreaking. And so I, I just thought, oh, this is not for those executives. This is for, you know, for me and for the people who just want to read a good thriller. Mm. Now, let's say you've written your outline, your 10 or 15 page outline. You're now in the throes of writing. Do you have a particular writing routine? Like, you know, you aim for a certain word count or you write for a certain number of hours or you have to go for a walk first or whatever, put on some music. Do you have any kind of writing routine when you're in the throes of writing? Absolutely. Um, yeah. I'm very much a, a, mo uh, a morning person. Mm -hmm. So get up, you know, have coffee, walk the dog, uh, sit down, you know, write a couple of emails, and then I have a, um, a page count. Um, mm -hmm. I try to do 10 pages of writing, and that's hard. Um, that can be, you know, a lot of times I don't make it, but I, I, it does, if I get there really fast, then my day's over. Um, if it takes me until, you know, nine at night, then I just keep going until I'm done. Um, so it's very much a, a, I could, it, that is a holdover from writing screenplays, yeah. like pages as opposed to words. Mm. Um, and I, I can never quite get the word thing. Like my editor will be like, well, it needs, you know, we need to trim 10,000 words. I'm like, I have no idea what 10,000 words is. Can you just <laughs> give me a page number? Um, so yeah, that's, that, that's it. It's, I have, I have rules. I'm a little anal on that kind of stuff, you know, mm. as you can tell. <laughs> so there's much talk these days in the industry about having an author platform. What do you think of this? Do you think this is important? You mean like, uh, uh, a social media platform? Yeah, and building your profile as an author. You know, gone are the days where you can just sort of leave it to your publisher to do all the publicity. Now you kind of need to do a bit of – you both need to contribute. Um, yeah, I mean, I for sure am doing that. Mm -hmm. um, I am somebody who I like to talk and I like to do these kind of podcasts and interviews and – I do a bunch of radio and I um, like to teach classes and go to book reading. So I'm not like a shut-in writer. Mm. I'm more of a, you know, a, a little bit more of an extrovert writer. Um, I, I the, it, it, this, I hope my publisher doesn't hear this. I, it amazes me how the marketing arm of publishing houses in the United States is not more aggressive about stuff like mm. in the entertainment business your marketing arm they run the show mm. i mean they're throwing millions of dollars around all the time trying desperately to get people to show up and put their butts in seats in movie theaters or turn the channel to watch their show i mean that's their lifeblood mm. and in publishing it's it's kind of it's a really old-fashioned business and, yes. and i'm kind of shocked um so yeah, I feel very much that you have to take matters into your own hands. I have a website and a Twitter and mm. uh, Instagram and I blog and I I do as many interviews as people will want to do. And I, and I like to spread the gospel of writing mm. and storytelling and how important it is and how to do it. I feel like it's not just 
you know, that you want to be a writer, but it's how you can tell stories in your life and how they can help you in all kinds of ways. So I'm, I'm all for it. Um, I feel like, you know, I can be an evangelist, not just for myself and not just for the Drew Chapman brand, but, you know, just for writing in general. Mm-mm. I love something that you wrote on your blog where you talk about clustering events and how last year um, The Ascendant was released on the 7th of January 2014 and two days later a TV show you produced and wrote The Assets premiered on ABC but then this year rolls around and um, on November 2nd uh, a TV show you co-executive produced and wrote, Legends, which interestingly I literally only discovered yesterday on the plane. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, the, 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 only yesterday. And um, and the next day after that was released on November 2nd, your second book, The King of Fear, it, it was released. So that begs the question, what's in store for 2016? What are you working on now that we're likely to see I know, within it's, two it's days kind of each other? It's amazing, right? <laughs> it's like, how, how did that possibly happen? It's yeah. just so random. It's great. Um, yeah, well, so 2016. So the um, Legend show is uh, done. We're finished writing it. It's, it's it's showing in the United States now, and my book is obviously coming out. Mm. Um, I'm writing a um, TV show for Amazon, actually. Oh. You know, Amazon is in the TV business now. Right. Um, so I'm writing a um, pilot for them. Whether they actually um, pick it up to series is another question, but mm-hmm. I've sold it as, a, as an idea. Um, and it is a little crazy. It is about a woman a soccer mom in the United States who becomes a revolutionary, like a real full on Che Guevara, like crazy revolutionary in the United States and tries to overthrow the government. And it's not entirely straight, a little comic. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I want to write, um, I'm going to start writing my third book. Mm -hmm. um, And I may actually go away from the whole Garrett Riley thing and write a, um, legal thriller one of the things i love is the other thing you know when you ask me like what do i love to do and i said Mm -hmm. editing the other thing i love to do is research oh Um, yeah i just i can do research like i could just do research forever and never actually do any writing right (laughs) um so for the ascendant and for king of fear i i sat with bond traders i went to china i went to eastern europe i i talk with the fbi and the cia i mean i just like do all kinds of research and now I started doing um, lots of legal research in the United States and sitting in courtrooms and talking to lawyers. So I think that'll be my next project. Do you already know, like, you know, you say that you plot within an inch of your life. What Do you already know what's going to happen in this book? No, I know the character. I know I want to write about a woman who is a defense lawyer in Seattle. I live in Seattle. Mm -hmm. Um, who is the daughter of a fancy corporate lawyer and whose sister is very successful and has lots of money and she's a down and out defense lawyer trying to defend people who are wrongly accused of this or wrongly accused of that. She's Mm -hmm. the black sheep. And I just love that particular character. I have a whole sort of backstory worked out for her. So now I, once I know the character, then Mm -hmm. the plotting, you know, that's sort of the easy part in a way, Mm -hmm. the fun part. Mm -hmm. Um, but I know, I know who she is. I can really get into what, what, what she's going to do. 
So in 2016, we're going to have the legal thriller and the Amazon TV series being released in two days of each other. All no, right. that'll, have, that'll have to happen in 2017. It'll take me at least a year to get all those things going. Okay, have a year off. Exactly. <laughs> all right, so you said that you'd love to be an advocate for writing generally and for storytelling generally. So what's your advice for aspiring writers who are – reading who are listening to this and who may not have that in like you did into the entertainment industry but who you know want to get paid to write who want to write their novel one day what's your advice to them on what they should do what the steps the steps they need to take well i think um that is a really interesting question and one that i get asked all the time um i think there's a couple of ways to approach it i think the first most important way to approach it, and this is the one that writers always hate to hear and takes a long time, and that is, I think you really have to figure out who you are. I think you have to figure out what you care about and what you're passionate about in the world. Um, And that requires a lot of self-reflection and a certain amount of living. Um, I think you need to really come to grips with what your obsessions are and what your passions are. Um, Because in writing, most of the time you're going to get no's you're going to get rejections people are not going to be interested or even if you get a you know a yes nobody's going to read it or they're going to only few people are going to watch it i mean there's so few like unadulterated hits in the world um that rejection is just a part of the process so you have to really understand what you want to say and who you are, because you're just going to be telling that same story over and over and over again in various different ways, um, in little different ways for your whole life. I mean, I feel like I just tell the same story over and over again, just tweak it here and there. Um, And so you have to be very thick skinned and you have to be very persistent and it has to be okay with you. You have to really come to peace with the possibility that you might not succeed, that you mm. might just be writing this and fail. And, and that has to be okay. Mm. Um, and not just like sort of surface level okay. It has to be really okay. Um, and, and that gives you a sort of inner strength to keep going. Um, and certainly I have been rejected a million times and been you know broke or you know nobody wanted to hire me so many times in my life. And you just have to feel that it's going to be okay you're gonna, you know, that that's okay. You'll just keep going. And then once you really come to sort of a peace with that, it's very liberating Mm. because then you can tell the world what you want to tell them. You can really, you have, then, then you have a voice all of a sudden and nobody can squash that voice. You, that voice is yours and that voice is powerful. And I don't know what it is. And I can't tell you, obviously each one of us has his own voice it may be women's rights it may be you know for me you know math and economics i I find those things fascinating it's a weird niche but i love it um you know (laughs) i I, and so i think you just have to really be at peace with that and then and then forge ahead and then you have to write you have to have you know examples of what you do um and you have to have a lot of examples of what you do because i think that the real truth is not everything you write is going to be good Mm. some things are going to be good and some things are going to be bad and you have to have a lot of them so that you have the good ones as well as the bad ones to show so that 
you know, the good ones you sell and the bad ones you tuck in a drawer. (laughs) And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Drew. Thank you for having me. Okay, so that was Drew Chapman. I hope you found it interesting. Very interesting. Thanks for that. So let's move on to our app pick for the week. Now, it's I want to say a shout out to Heather Smith who brought this app to my attention and it's called Tape a Call and you can get it for iPhones and Android. Now this is useful because I decided to try it out. I I purchased it. You can get the free you can get a free version, but I decided I wanted all the functionality and it's not cheap, you know, it's like 14 or 15 dollars that mm-hmm. that you have to pay for this app. But I purchased it this morning and I gave it a few test runs with just, you know, people in the office because what it's designed to do do is that it it is very useful for journalists or freelance writers is that while you're on the phone to whoever it records the interview and that can certainly be useful because then you don't have to use the phone contraption thing and you know I read a bunch of different reviews about this app and some people were saying it's absolutely brilliant and some people think it's really crap (laughs) so I thought there's only one way to find out and I had a really important interview that I had to do this morning for a story that I'm writing so I downloaded it I paid the money um, did a couple of tests and uh, recorded a 45 minute interview (gasps) with it you know and it has worked oh thank god so just a warning if it hadn't I know. Well, no, just in case, though, I did take notes, um, you know, so that I had a backup in case it didn't work. Because you can potentially have a heart attack and think it's not going to work because what's interesting is that because it was 45 minutes, uh, it actually takes about half an hour to render and appear in in the list. So that's kind of like half an hour where you're thinking, oh, my God, did it work? Did it work? Did it work? Because the tests I did were only 30 seconds or one minute. So they appeared very quickly. But if you obviously what happens is if you have a longer call, it um, it takes a while for it to do whatever it does in cyberspace or on your phone or wherever and, and appear. And what this app supposedly does, although I haven't done this yet, is it um, – will send it to your Dropbox if you want. So, for example, you might send it to Dropbox so that your transcriptionist might, you know, transcribe it. It can, if you want, share apparently your audio on social media. So it records it as an MP3 and it has a bunch of other features as well. I've only just tried the recording function, which has worked and it's very clear. Uh, So this app actually, um, Al, would have been really handy for us on those times sometimes when we've done our podcast and Skype has decided (laughs) not to behave, we could have potentially... You mean like recently? Yes, like recently. (laughs) Thanks, Skype. (laughs) But we'll put the link in the show notes. But if you want to have a look, just go to tapeacall.com. Obviously, you're not taping it, but for those people who remember what it was like to tape things, uh, it's a little bit retro. It's called tapeacall.com. There you go. Love it. Love it. That's our app pick for the week. Let's move on to our working writer's tip. And I think this is for you, Al. Oh. This is from Linton, who's from South Australia. And Linton has asked that uh, the main focus is a trilogy. 
So I'll, let, I'll just start again. I've, I've, she said, I've written a few chapters of a series and a bunch of unpublished short stories. My main focus is a trilogy. I've written the first and most of the second book of my trilogy as a first draft. I feel like I need to write all three before I can be sure that the first one is right. How do you approach a trilogy, Alison? I have outlined what will happen, but I want to foreshadow things in the first book that will happen in the third book. How do you approach it? Do you only write one at a time or do you draft all three first? How does one foreshadow books ahead or do you just get lucky and figure it out as you go? So she's asked another question, but let's just do that question. I think Linton is a she. I've got a friend called Linton who's a he. Yes, I'm sorry, Linton. You might be a he or a she. Hmm. I'm sorry. I don't know. Oh, Valerie. This sorry. is the whole da- – it's the Darren thing all over again. I know. Isn't it? Sorry. <laughs> well, anyway, sorry. Let's go back to the question. Yes. Uh, so, yes, I'm really not very good a good person to ask about this because, you know, I tend to work on the making it up as you go along scale <laughs> of the thing. But I will just tell you how my trilogy came about and yep. hopefully that will be helpful. So what I did was I wrote the first book and I outlined the second two. Then, then I sold the first book. So I was committed, <laughs> which mm. is always helpful. Then I, as I was editing the first book, I wrote the second book because that allowed me to see where the middle of the story was going to go, mm. like properly because, you know, an outline for me is a very, very flexible, elastic thing. Um, as I was writing the second book, I realised that I needed to insert a few details into the first book that I had not. Um, so I, I did that as I went. Then uh, the first book went off to print, so that was that. So then as I was editing the second book, I wrote the third book. And again, I did this exact, used the same process. But as I wrote the third book, I also came to realize that things that I had randomly put into the first book, including some family history stuff that was really only there as a, you know, as a setting thing, Mm -hmm. became very, very important. And it all came out in the third book and I was a bit like walking around with procrasty pup going, that's why I did that. Because mm. I think your brain makes a lot of connections that you don't necessarily realise it's doing. Now, I do not recommend this approach. Because, <laughs> no, I really, I really don't. I, I actually don't mm. recommend my approach to writing because I think it's one of those things where I think you – I've talked about this before. I think that you have to remember – that the only person who knows how you write a book is you. Yeah. Now, I can tell you how I write a book and you can sit there and go, you're insane. And it's quite true. I am insane. But, you know, I, I look at other fabulous authors who, or, who work on the same premise as I do. Mind you, they're not necessarily trying to plot a series this way, which is, you know, not ideal. So I would personally suggest that if you are halfway through your second book, write all three because then you will know for sure that that is how you, that, that that they're going to work out for you because mm. that's the worst possible thing that uh, the worst thing is that you get to your third book and realize that you really should have had something in that first book that's mm. not there. Mm. Um, so I would recommend either a very very detailed plotting outline. I've got friends who write twenty thousand word outlines. Wow. I would suggest something that is that structured and that that detailed. Um, personally. Or um, or that you write all three. I personally would probably just write all three because that's how I work best, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I work best that way. Um, but, yeah, it didn't work that way for me at this partic- in this particular case because I sold the first one, um, yep. much to my surprise. And so, um, you know, but, but yeah, like a, a, a logical and detailed structural step 
through a series is going to work best. Mm. You don't want to leave something out yeah, that you absolutely. need, basically. Um, now, for the second part of your question, Linton, was quite interesting because it's saying to me that you're, you, you say the second issue for me is how much my brain tells me my writing sucks <laughs> as I'm writing. It probably does, but it's not productive to think like that. Is there a switch to turn that off? There is no switch to turn that off, unfortunately. However, the best possible thing you can keep that you can do is to keep going because mm. you're writing, there's a voice in your head, that voice is always going to tell you that your writing sucks mm. and it's, it takes the actual pushing through that to get to the end. Then you read back over your work and you realise that, yep, some of it does suck really badly, mm. but there are bits in there that you will recognise and they're usually the bits that look like they were written by someone else and those bits you're going to recognise do not suck and those are the bits you hang on to. Mm, absolutely. So, yeah, you and will I'll, probably never love your own writing, but you will get to a point where you can recognise the sucky bits from the non-sucky bits. Yes, and I would also suggest that that's not just applicable to writing. I mean, that's applicable to life. We, in mm. Whatever we do in life, we often have imposter syndrome and yes. we often think, oh, what did I do? That really sucked. And, yeah, there is no – there isn't a switch to turn on that off. You need to decide – whether to, you know, go forward. Yeah, go forward or not, mm. or, or be, you know, um, paralyzed by it. And yeah. that's, that's simply a decision. That's your decision. Yeah. I think you just, I think you acknowledge it, but you don't let it stop mm. you because yeah. letting it stop you, that nasty little voice wins. But you will get to the point where you recognize that some of your bits, some of your writing does not suck. And that's yeah. a big day. Yeah. And that only comes with experience. It does. And doing more of it. It does. All right. So we are almost at the end of our episode. What are you doing over the next week until we meet again? Oh, I'm writing stuff. You know how I do. <laughs> Walking. Yes. My, poor old procrastinator had a sore leg, and he was, you know, he was oh. out of action. So I had to procrastinate all by myself, which I have to tell you is just not as much fun. <laughs> um, so he's back in action now. So we're doing a lot of walking while I think about things. Um, I'm still, I, I'm still preparing to write my screenplay. You know, I yes. feel like I, I feel like I need to prepare for that forever more. But again, that's I'm feeling a little. I'm feeling your pain. Linton, let's just say that when it comes to, to going into a new field that I haven't done before. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping that won't suck too much. And um, yeah, so that's me. That's what I'm up to. What about you? Uh, I've got a couple of freelance stories due for some glossy magazines and they uh, some of them, you know, flow so well and it's just so easy and they come off and they just, it's just been a seamless journey and others are like wading through concrete just because, you know, you're waiting for people to come back to you with answers or interviews and that sort of thing and I'm currently in the middle of one of those. <laughs> so uh, fortunately, the one I just filed was seamless and lovely and wonderful but yes you know you have it's all the balance isn't it oh it is and those stories are so stressful I know when you're waiting, waiting. <laughs> the waiting see the waiting kills us yes, all yes the waiting yes in the meantime where do we find you online Al you'll find me at alisontate.com you will find me on twitter at at Al Tate A-L-T-A-I-T and you'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer and you'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and uh, Instagram and it's pretty easy to find me on Facebook just search for Valerie Koo K-H-O-O and uh, if you want to look at the show notes we've got a really easy and handy URL for you and that is so you want to be a writer.com.au and you'll find Woo-hoo. the show notes so until next time 
we'll talk to you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>